And if you will, uh, please turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, we're going to read verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray. Lord, we, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Bless it to our hearts, Lord. Cause it to bear fruit in our lives. May your spirit work in your word with power. And may it not return unto you void. We pray, Lord, not only for our church, but for all the churches in your visible church. May, may your word go forth with power. May you use your word to draw us into communion with your son. May it be for the conversion of sinners and, and for the returning of backsliders. It's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen. John Calvin says in his Institutes that the human heart is a factory of idols. Your average person will, will scoff at that idea and think that it's simply ridiculous. Maybe even some Christians would think that this is an overstatement at best. See, even we as Christians, we often fail to understand our own hearts. We fail to see that sometimes we put trust in our idols and in things that can't actually save us. It often, it often doesn't feel like we do these things. We may think that we are engaged in true religion, when in fact our, our faith is being placed in the performance of our duties, instead of in the God that we are seeking to serve. This is, in, in fact, the natural tendency of the human heart. It's a sinful remnant of our old nature. We sometimes believe that our external actions are all that matter. Because we know that our friends and family, they can't see what's in our hearts. All that people can see is, is what's on the outside. And so we make the outside of our lives look good. While on the inside, we're, we're plagued with with wicked and, and vile sins. And the biggest problem is we, we tend to think that God sees us the way that men see us. And so we think that it's enough to serve God externally without loving him internally. This was one of the problems with the Pharisees, wasn't it? Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They honored God with their mouths but their hearts were far from him. It's kind of like children, when your parents ask you to clean your room, and you really don't want to, but, but you know you'll get in trouble if you don't. So, so you take everything off the floor, and you shove it under the bed, or you shove it in the closet. 
And so when you look at your room from the outside, it, it looks clean. But when you really get in there and you start to look around, you see that you didn't clean your room at all. You just hid the mess. That's what the Pharisees were like. And that's what many of us are like in our own lives before God. But we have to understand that God knows our hearts. And and he wants us to worship him from our hearts. And so we'll consider today what religion from the heart looks like. We'll call this heart religion. This is what Paul's referring to when he says that a Jew is defined not by anything on the outside, but by what's on the inside. It's not a physical circumcision that makes a person a Jew. It's, it's a spiritual circumcision that makes a person a Jew. The physical act of circumcision signified regeneration and sanctification. And it was the spiritual reality of these things that was necessary for the Jews. And Paul equates the sign of circumcision of the Old Testament to the sign of baptism in the New Testament. He says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So in him you were circumcised, having been buried with him in baptism. Now he's, he's not talking about the, the physical sign of circumcision here. He's talking about its spiritual reality, the, the putting off of the body of the flesh. And he's saying that in your spiritual baptism, in your coming to faith, all that circumcision represented has been given to you. The sign of circumcision and the sign of baptism represent the same spiritual reality. And so our text could just as easily read, he is not a Christian, which is one outwardly but he is a Christian, which is one inwardly. A true Christian is defined by his heart towards God. A true Christian practices heart religion. And to properly understand what heart religion means, we'll need to first understand its counterpart, and and we'll call this formal religion. Now, formal religion is religion that relies on and trusts in the mere forms of worship. You might hear people calling it just going through the motions. It places its faith in the mere performance of ritual. It replaces true spiritual worship with the mere presentation or or performance of religious duties and practices. You could think of it like a, a man gathered with the church in, in corporate prayer. His, his head is bowed. His eyes are closed. Everything about him from the outside indicates that he's participating in the prayer. 
but his mind is elsewhere. And he's entertaining himself with his own thoughts, thinking about the football game later on today. And so his body and his heart tell two different stories. His body appears to be active in prayer, but his heart is chasing after its own pleasures. And yet he thinks that that being present with the church is enough. As if God will look upon him approvingly just because he looks like the rest of the church. He's willing to go so far to, to blend in with the saints. But he's not willing to put in the work that, that comes with being a true disciple of Christ. You could, you could say that his, his intention is to deceive God. He thinks that if he looks like a Christian, and if he acts like a Christian, if he talks like a Christian, then God will have mercy on him. He comes to the wedding party without a wedding garment, and he tries to blend into the crowd. But Paul says, in effect, he is not a Christian, which is one outwardly. And God will not be deceived by your performance you know, you could, you could turn on the television and, and see Hollywood has these award shows where they, where they give these awards to the best actors and actresses of our day. And, and some of them are pretty good. But no one is so good at acting that they can deceive God. God looks into the depths of your heart. He knows what your heart truly treasures. And he knows your deepest desires. So what does he see when he looks into your heart? Does he see a person who's sincere in his worship? Or does he see someone who's running after his own lusts and pleasures instead? Have you taken a spiritual inventory of yourself today? Or have, uh, recently? See, it's it's important that we're honest with ourselves about the states of our hearts because one day, your heart will stop beating. And the question is, was God pleased with you when it did? Where was your heart? Paul says, says elsewhere that these formal Christians have a form of godliness, but they don't have the power of godliness. It doesn't profit a man to perform religious worship without ever experiencing it. And I should say, conservative Christians have, 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 have to be careful here. Because we may prize the regulative principle of worship and even have the purest worship imaginable But we have to guard against the tendency to trust in the purity of our worship over a true experiential worship of Christ. You can have the purest form of external worship imaginable, but still miss Christ. So don't be satisfied with a heart that doesn't commune with Christ in your worship. See, a a person can certainly profess faith 
without ever practicing it in his heart. In fact, a, a formal Christian can have a better intellectual grasp of theology than any one of us ever will. And they'll, they'll often take pride in this knowledge. They, they might be able to win debates and, and prove people wrong and like to, like to point out everyone else's mistakes, but their hearts are never gripped by the knowledge that they have. They might have and, and read all the greatest theology books, and they, they might have all the confessions and catechisms memorized. They certainly might know theology, but they haven't come to know God. Samuel Rutherford correctly said that it's easier to be orthodox than to be godly. Storing up theological knowledge in our heads is easy. But storing it up in our hearts and practicing it in our lives is difficult. And we have to be especially careful of formalism when it comes to things that we do regularly. Familiarity tends to breed formalism. It's like when you start your day. You, you know it's best to, to start with prayer and Bible reading. But it might start to feel like your morning prayers are all sounding the same. And before you know it, you're, you're saying the words, but you're not engaged in what you're saying. Your mind and your heart are elsewhere. Or maybe the prayers before you eat. It's, it's always the same thing. And, and sooner or later, you're, you're kind of on autopilot. It's, this tends to be the case when we become too familiar with our religious duties. It can happen at church. You sing. You, you recite the creeds. You say the prayers. But your heart isn't in it. You give the Lord your lips, but you don't give him your heart. It can happen in your Bible reading. You might be trying to stick to a reading plan, and, and you end up rushing through reading the Bible to meet your goal, and, and you read the words, but you don't, you don't meditate on them. You don't let them sit and, and work on your soul. It's like sitting down for a feast, but, but then walking away hungry. It doesn't benefit you. You do the external duty, but all the substance is internal. And you miss out on all of it. In the end, there's no real spiritual benefit that comes from form, formal religion. It's like the placebo effect applied to our souls. We convince ourselves that it's working, but it has no power. There's no salvation. There's no peace for your soul. And there's no comfort offered by formal religion. It's like um, before we moved into our house here in Newland, we lived in an old drafty apartment in Boone. And, uh, you know, in the mountains, it gets, gets pretty windy in the winters. And, and uh, the heaters in our apartments, it, it, they couldn't keep up with the cold air that was coming in through the windows and stuff. And so we kept talking about how we would love to have a fireplace. So what we did instead is 
we, we bought a DVD that played a video of a fireplace on a loop, and like it had the crackling sounds and everything. And it, it gave us a sense of comfort. But it couldn't give us warmth. That's like formal religion. It's like a fire that has no heat. One of the Puritans compared formal religion to the winter sun. It shines, but it doesn't warm. J.C. Ryle said that a painted fire cannot warm. A painted banquet cannot satisfy hunger. And a formal religion cannot bring peace to the soul. He is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is he a Christian who merely performs external worship, a formal religion. God demands our hearts. And so we see the need for heart religion. Paul says he is a Jew. Let's see. Paul says, uh, he, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit and not the letter. If, if you ever hear people talking about the, the appropriate things to wear for church, you'll probably hear someone quote 1 Samuel 16, where it says that a man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And while this, this may be an appropriate verse to use in that context, it ought to, to cause us to think beyond just the clothes that we wear. It ought to cause, cause us to think about the heart that we're bringing before God in worship. You see, the heart defines the character of a man. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And uh, Proverbs 23.7 tells us that as he thinketh in his heart, so is the man. Your heart defines who you are before God. And the heart is, is the birthplace of all our actions. And, and so a wicked heart cannot produce anything but wicked fruit. That's why saving religion begins in the heart. In our fallen nature, our, our hearts are spiritually dead. And they must be made alive, like we read in Ezekiel. In our fallen nature, our, our hearts are hard and they must be made tender. In our fallen nature, our, our hearts are closed, and they must be made open. We cannot be saved with a natural heart. And so, in regeneration, the Spirit makes us alive in Christ. He takes away our hearts of stone, and He gives us hearts of flesh, and He opens our hearts to receive the gospel. Our hearts are central in our conversions. And so it can rightfully be said that the heart is and was and always will be the ground upon which all true religion stands. There was never a time in which God demanded an external formality over the internal reality. 
We could see this in, in Jeremiah's time. You see, the, the Israelites were practicing formalism. Their hearts sought after other gods, but, but they would still do the sacrifices and they would do the rituals and, and all the washings that God wanted them to do. And they thought that the mere performance of those duties would, would be enough to maintain a right relationship with God. But then God responds to them in chapter 7. And he says in verse 21, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. Now, now the burnt offerings were, were to be totally consumed or, or burnt up in the fire on the altar. And this was to symbolize the, the total consecration of the Israelites to God. But God told them to eat the burnt offerings instead. He didn't want any part of them. And why not? Because the Israelites were not totally consecrated to God. Their hearts were far from him. They were, they were offering the sacrifices, but they weren't doing it with hearts given to Christ by faith. They were doing everything they needed to do on the outside, but their hearts were seeking their own interests. They sought their own benefits outside of God. And they were looking to the performance of their duty and trusting in that alone. And and they let their hearts seek after idols. And and God says, take your burnt offerings and and have them for yourselves. I don't want them. And then he continues in verses 22 and 23. He says, "Um, for in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt... I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them. Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. Now see, God actually did command that they perform the sacrifices. But what he's saying here is that it wasn't the sacrifices that he truly wanted. He wanted repentant and obedient hearts from his people. The signs without the realities were worthless. And so since they didn't have the right heart before God, the performance of the duty meant nothing to God. David understood this um, in, in Psalm 51. He prays to God and he says, Thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it thee. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. But, but David, don't you know that God does command the sacrifices? Who, who are you to think that he doesn't actually want them? But you see, David understood that the sacrifices were meant to point to something much greater. So he continues, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. The heart is and was and always will be the ground upon which all true religion stands. 
The sacrifices meant nothing before God if they were removed from a heart broken over its sin. Circumcision meant nothing before God if removed from a heart given to God by faith. Likewise, what what does your baptism profit you before God if you never truly come to him by faith? What do your prayers profit you before God if you haven't submitted your heart to him? The mere performance of religious duty is not enough. Circumcision is of the heart. Baptism is of the heart. Prayer is of the heart. The Lord's Supper is of the heart. The Sabbath is of the heart. Our entire worship is of the heart. God demands the hearts of his people. Hearts that are are turned over to him by faith. Hearts that delight to do his will and and to see him glorified. Hearts that, that take pleasure in the things of God over the things of this world. Hearts that are not content with the mere external performance of religion, but that practice all the internal realities as well. The outward things of Christianity, baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer, singing, family worship, Sabbath keeping, church attendance, and so on, they will never be enough to save you. You need a renewed heart. You need to be born again. This was Jesus' message to Nicodemus. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus didn't understand this, even though these things were clearly taught in the Old Testament. And so Jesus responds, Are you a master of Israel and you don't know these things? Formal religion is ingrained in our fallen nature. It's our default understanding of religious worship. We'll always tend to gravitate replacing the work of our hearts with the work of our hands. But God demands your heart, first and foremost. The heart is and was and always will be the ground upon which all true religion stands. But, but now, if we're, if we're being honest with ourselves, our hearts are often weak. And sometimes the most we can offer God is, is a broken heart, a heart shattered by the sins in our lives, a heart crushed under the weight of of sin and guilt. And we could barely come up with the strength even even to pray. I love the advice of, of John Bunyan. He said, When you pray, you should rather let your heart be without words than your words without heart. And the same applies to all our worship. See, we serve a a loving and a gracious God who who delights to forgive the sins of those who come to him by faith. A God who who delights to forgive the sins of a person who, who worships him 
with his whole heart. You will, not might, you, you will fall short in your life as a Christian, as a father, as a mother, as a son, as a daughter, as a grandparent, as a brother or sister. You will fall short. But God is ready to forgive those who serve him with their whole hearts. But, but now, all of that being said, many people in our day have taken those truths and, and have determined that since God demands our hearts in worship over the mere outward elements of worship, that then we can do away with the outward elements completely. But that's not what Paul's getting at. And in fact, um, he affirms the usefulness of the outward aspects of our worship in the next verse. He says, what profit is there of circumcision? And says, much in every way. The outward elements of worship are not to be neglected, but neither are they to be trusted in, in and of themselves. They can't be separated from our hearts being engaged in them. We have to be cautious of both extremes. On the one hand, we shouldn't trust in the mere use of external elements of religion. But on the other hand, we shouldn't suppose that because our hearts are primary in our worship, that we are free to do away with what God has prescribed for our worship. God has instituted the outward elements of worship for a reason, and we ought to use them appropriately that is in the way that he intended. Because God shows all throughout the Bible that he cares a great deal about the way in which he's worshipped. It's for this reason that uh, Nadab and Abihu were killed in Leviticus chapter 10. They sought to worship God in a way that he had not prescribed. Their hearts were given to his service, but they sought to serve him incorrectly. And God killed them. And it's for this reason that Uzzah was killed for touching the Ark of the Covenant. His intention wasn't wrong necessarily. He he didn't want the Ark to fall on the ground. His heart was, was probably in the right place. But he disobeyed God in the way in which he, he ordered for his handling of the Ark to be done. So we must be careful to worship God according to the means that he's prescribed for us to use. But in those external elements of worship, in the simple means of grace, we must be sure that our hearts are engaged in them. So when you come to church, let it, let it not simply be for the sake of coming to church. When you sing, with, with, when you sing, sing with grace in your hearts. When you partake of the Lord's Supper, may your hearts be be touched by the glory and and the beauty of the gospel presented in it. When you pray, may may your words not be empty, but full of faith and and trust in the Lord. God has instituted the elements of worship to, to stir our hearts 
and to cause our hearts to join with him in fellowship and communion. And so may we be a people who who treasure the pure and the simple means of grace and who use them with engaged and active hearts. But then, this heart religion, Paul says, it's not popular. He says, our praise is not of men, but of God. We shouldn't expect the world to applaud us for practicing true religion. The world will will declare us extremists and and fanatics for encouraging and, and for demanding Anything more than a formal religion. If, if we don't praise and, and approve of moderate church attendance and, and brief, lifeless prayers and, and, and heartless participation in things like the Lord's Supper, then we're being unloving in the eyes of the world. Who are we, they say, to, to demand anything more? You see, the world wants nothing to do with a Christianity that requires us to forsake our sins. The world wants nothing to do with a Christianity that pierces our consciences. The world wants nothing to do with a Christianity that demands holiness and, and obedience in our lives. But the world will embrace an easy Christianity. A Christianity in which you could go on living as you please. A Christianity that, that caters to the world's demands for, for, for things like entertainment and comfort. A Christianity that, that requires no sacrifice, no effort, and no heart. The world will praise that kind of Christianity. And if you would dare to call such a Christianity into question, well, well, you're being uncharitable. You're being unreasonable. You're being too extreme. You're majoring in the minors, they'll say. As if a circumcised heart, cut off from the world, is, is a minor aspect of our Christian lives. As you can see by looking around us, the, the world has created for itself a comfortable Christianity that I think Paul declares in this text is no Christianity at all. It's, it's a formal religion. It provides the world with, with that placebo effect of comfort. But it doesn't interfere with, with its pursuit of sin. It engages you in, in religious activity, but, but it allows your heart to go on untroubled in its pursuit of sin. You see, if, if you wanted to go to church to, to have a good time, to sing some happy songs and to raise your hands and, and to hear some ways to improve your life from the Bible and, and it, while never having to actually confront your sins, you have a lot of options in this world. The modern pop culture churches know that there are many people who, who want the benefits of going to church without having to change their lives at all. These people tend to want some kind of religious experience and, and perhaps they want to have some kind of claim to our moral standing in this world. 
but they don't want to confront their sins. They don't want to sacrifice their pleasures. They don't want to be told what to do or what not to do. They just want quick and easy comfort that requires little to no sacrifice of themselves at all. And so you have these churches that won't speak much of sin, but they'll claim that you're going to have some victory over your life. They declare peace when there is no peace, as the prophet Jeremiah condemned. And so no one is left with a heart troubled by their sin. That is not Christianity. It's, it's nothing but a performance of Christianity. Going through the motions of Christian experience and worship, but the heart is left to its own pleasure. And the sinful heart is never troubled, but it's comforted. That is not Christianity. True religion has nothing in itself to attract natural men to itself. It's not easy. It's not flashy. We don't have the the elaborate architecture or, or the bells and smells, but we worship in spirit and we worship in truth. And we use only the simple elements that God has prescribed for us to use. The preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, the singing of psalms and hymns and songs inspired, and the offerings of prayer. And and in the performance of all these things, we look to God with our hearts. We worship him with our hearts. And we trust that by these simple elements, God will work in and through those elements by the power of his spirit to bring us to saving faith in Christ and and to keep us in that faith and and to preserve us to the end until until we're with him in glory. We trust not in the mere performance of these things, but we give to God our hearts. For he is not a Christian, which is one outwardly, but he is a Christian, which is one inwardly. So may we not receive the praise of man, but let's rejoice that we have the praise of God. And let us endeavor all the days of our lives to be a people that God praises. Let us be a people with with our hearts given to the Lord. Let us be a people who, who can rightfully be called true Christians. Let us worship him with our hearts.